Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I'm excited because today we're going to be talking about a topic that is unfortunately widely misunderstood, and that is we're going to talk about the Bill of Rights. And I wonder if we could start by, by maybe getting your thoughts on what are we talking about when we say the word rights? What are they? What aren't they? Well, you think of rights as authorization to do something or authorization not to do something. In other words, I have a right not to, to go to work today. I might get fired for it, but I have a right not to go to work. Nobody, unless I'm in the military, nobody can force me to go to work. And so I have a right to work or a right not to work. And But rights are entitlements to do something or not to do something. And I would emphasize that rights come from God. In fact, the framers clearly recognize that. Declaration of Independence clearly says that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And the only way that we can recognize that rights are unalienable is to recognize that they come from a higher source than man. A lot of people seem to think that government is the source of our rights. Well, if that's the case, then they are not rights. They are negotiable privileges, because if the government gives them, the government can take them away. Some think that the rights come from the Constitution. But if rights come from the Constitution, then we can just amend the Constitution and thereby take away those rights. No, to say they are unalienable means they are coming from a higher source than man. And what source could that be but God? And in the Declaration of Independence... Jefferson and the signers of the Declaration clearly recognize this when they go on to say, after saying that we are endowed with certain unalienable rights, and they go on to say, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. Notice they don't say to grant these rights, they say to secure these rights. In other words, to make possible the enjoyment of, to protect and preserve the rights that God has already given us. In the preamble to the Constitution. One of the purposes of government that we see set forth in the preamble there is to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity. Again, not grant, but to secure. And when we talk about blessings of liberty, well, a blessing is conferred by somebody higher to somebody lower. And so calling our liberties, the blessings of liberty, is likewise a recognition that those liberties come from a higher source than man, that is God. Now, sometimes what we do here when we talk about rights, too, is we talk about positive rights versus negative rights. And within legal circles today, very liberal left-wing legal circles today, there is quite an emphasis today on what we're calling positive rights. What positive rights are, are things that we are entitled to have the government give us, rather than negative rights, meaning the government can't restrain us from these things. By a positive right, for example, would be a right to have an income. A negative right would be the right to look for a job and to secure that income. The right to housing 
you look at that as a positive right, it means the government owes you a house. The government has a duty to provide you with a house. Putting it into the negative sense, it means you have the right to go out and seek a house, build it, or buy it, and earn the money to, to build it. And when the framers were talking about rights, they meant rights in a negative sense, not in a positive sense in which we're using it today as entitlements from government. You might ask, well, you say that rights come from God. Well, does God say anything about giving rights in the Bible? Well, I think you can infer the concept of rights from the Bible in several ways. First of all, the fact that we are created in God's image means that we possess a certain human dignity, and there are certain rights that go with that human dignity. Some of the negative commands of Scripture can be interpreted to imply rights. For example, the command, thou shalt not kill, implies a right to life. The command, thou shalt not steal, implies a right to property. And you could say that maybe that just means you don't steal from the state, but when you go on and and combine that with the last, the thou shalt not covet anything that is thy neighbor's, clearly there, we are talking about private property. And various other commands in Scripture, that you shall not enslave people and things like that, various other commands of Scripture imply rights to liberty. Anyway, so the negative commands of Scripture likewise imply human rights. That's a great explanation. Thank you for for spelling that out, uh, because there there are an awful lot of people, and I mean, again, this being an election year, you're hearing a lot of candidates running on, well, you have a right to a free education, you have a right to a livable wage, and so forth. And, and so clearly this is a, a message that is not uh, exactly in focus in a lot of people's minds. They, they they confuse the rights with wants. Now, bringing this to, to our system of government, um, we're going to be talking about the Bill of Rights now that we have a, a basic understanding of what rights are, let's talk about how the founders approached rights when it came to establishing the system of governance that they gave us. In the colonial charters, 13 colonies, you know, with their various charters, every one of them at the time of the adoption of the United States Constitution, every one of them contained a Bill of Rights, and usually they were at the very beginning of the Constitution rather than tacked on to the end like our Bill of Rights. But you notice there was no original Bill of Rights in the Constitution itself. And in fact, when the convention was over with, and one of the first things Madison did was to send a copy of it to Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson was not at the convention. He was serving as a consul to France at the time. But Jefferson read the Constitution that Madison had sent him, and he wrote back with some words of praise and things that he liked about it, the limited powers, the separation of powers, and so on. And then he wrote, now I will tell you what I do not like. And the first thing he said he didn't like was the lack of a Bill of Rights. And James Madison read that, and he said, I knew we forgot something, a Bill of Rights. No, that's not what happened at all. <laughs> they did consider a Bill of Rights. They didn't talk about it a great deal, but when you read through the notes of the convention, you find that there were discussions about whether there should be a Bill of Rights, and the consensus of the delegates was that we don't need a Bill of Rights. 
And that was Madison's opinion as well. Now, there were several reasons they gave for this. Madison's view was that we are establishing a government of only limited and delegated powers. We don't need to tell the government what it can't do. We're only telling it what it can do. And anything that we haven't told the government it can do, it can't do. We don't have to tell the federal government that it cannot have an established religion, that can't have an official state church. Obviously, they can't. We haven't delegated them any authority to do that. We don't have to tell them that they can't quarter troops in people's homes without their consent in time of peace. Obviously, they can't do that. We haven't delegated them any authority to do that. And so we don't need a Bill of Rights to tell government what it can't do. Now, Hamilton looked at it in a little different way. He said that a Bill of Rights could be dangerous because once you start numbering your rights, you're not going to mention them all. And what happens to the ones you fail to name? Let's say in this program, for the rest of this program, we ask people, make a list of your rights with the idea that any right you fail to name, you forfeit. Do you think you'd remember all of your rights? Oh, heavens, right to no. breathe, for example? No. And anyway, so Hamilton was saying, rather than have a Bill of Rights, which would necessarily be incomplete, it is better to rely upon the tradition of rights and common law. Otherwise, government is going to take the position someday, you didn't name that right in the Bill of Rights, therefore you don't have that right. And Roger Sermon and several others noted that because of the limited nature of government and because the courts would primarily be dealing with just federal issues and issues involving rights would be handled by the state courts, that this was better handled by state constitutions and their Bill of Rights and that one wasn't necessary at the federal level. And so you don't find a Bill of Rights in the Constitution itself. But we will see where a Bill of Rights becomes an issue during the ratification debates. And we'll talk about that probably after this break. Okay. So as, as we're coming up on the break, um, uh, again, if, if you're just joining us for the first time, this is the Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. If, if uh, you find that this is useful information, that this is giving you something that uh, gives you substance and understanding and clarity on the system of governance that, that we have, including where we need to shore some things up, please feel free to tell your friends. If you haven't already done it, download the Loving Liberty app on your cell phone, or you can always share the podcast links from lovingliberty.net. We'll take a very quick time out. We'll be back just the other side of these commercial messages. to Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We're talking about the Bill of Rights today, and Colonel, let's take this time to go through the Bill of Rights and talk a little bit about some of the specific rights that are being protected. And, and if you would, I'd love to get your commentary on um, how well the Bill of Rights is, is working to limit government power in protecting those rights, because I, I get a feeling that they've slipped on some of them. I believe you're correct. They have slipped on some. But I think some of the sections of the Constitution that have just been routinely ignored have been the limitation on regulating 
commerce within a state and how interstate commerce has been interpreted to mean almost anything that goes on in commerce anywhere, and likewise general welfare. But a lot of clauses, I think, have been stretched in terms of government power. But in terms of rights, I guess I would say that you see these provisions of the Bill of Rights being enforced in the courts every day in courts of justice where we deal with issues of whether somebody has been properly advised of his rights concerning self-incrimination or whether his right against unreasonable search and seizure has been violated by a search warrant that didn't have probable cause or things like that. We see those rights being enforced regularly. And so I think for the most part, we have adhered to the Bill of Rights quite well. But I think that there are several, like the right to keep and bear arms, and even today, the right of free speech and the right of free exercise of religion. Several of these, I think, are in danger of being seriously violated. But as we look to the Bill of Rights, one of the things that I think stands out about them is that every one of these amendments, in one way or another, limits the power of the federal government. And what makes this so interesting is that the amendments after that, the 11th to 27th amendments, most of these have the effect of expanding the power of government. But the Bill of Rights themselves are limits on the power of government. And you can do a quick overview of these rights. And first of all, the First Amendment concerns freedom of expression and various forms, as we're going to see in the next segment of this broadcast. The second, the right to keep and bear arms, just a story described that right as the palladium, that is the outer wall of protection of our liberties. That the right to keep and bear arms wasn't just for target practice and wasn't just for self-defense against criminals. Part of the reason for it, as Madison says and as Hamilton says, both of them in the Federalist Papers, is a protection against domestic tyranny. That so long as there is an armed populace, our rights are secure. The Third Amendment concerns quartering troops. That hasn't been really much of an issue in the last 200 years, but had been an issue during the war for independence because British soldiers were quartered in American houses against the owner's consent. Well, many times these soldiers could be very abusive and having soldiers quartered in your house is not just like having a relative come in to stay. This could be a very abusive situation. That really hasn't been much of an issue. The freedom against unreasonable search and seizure. This is a very important right and it's a right that we should certainly value and respect and enforce, even if we have nothing to hide. Even if you don't have anything to hide, you don't want government going through your linen drawers or going through your files and so on, because there is a right of privacy implied there that we don't want governments to violate unless there's good reason to violate it. And ultimately, as we're going to see when we look at the Fourth Amendment, every case involving Fourth Amendment search and seizure ultimately turns around that word unreasonable. The right of the people to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures. The Fifth Amendment deals with various rights in the criminal process, like self-incrimination, grand jury, and the like, as well as the rights not to have your life, liberty, or property taken without due process of law. The 
Sixth Amendment, likewise, criminal prosecution rights. These are more of the procedures that take place during trial, that you're entitled to a speedy and a public trial. You're entitled to a trial by jury. You're entitled to confront your accusers. You're entitled to be assisted by counsel. You're entitled to cross-examine the witnesses against you. The Seventh Amendment goes to civil matters and provides that in civil cases involving more than a certain amount of money, that the right of a trial by jury shall be preserved. The Eighth Amendment concerns the right to be free from unreasonable amounts of bail and the right to be free from cruel and unusual punishment. The Ninth Amendment was an idea inserted primarily by James Madison concerning what Hamilton had said about the danger of the Bill of Rights. Hamilton said, you recall, that if we have a Bill of Rights, what's going to happen to the rights we failed to name? Some court down the line is going to say that because we didn't name that right, that right is not protected and government can violate it. And so Madison inserted the Ninth Amendment, which says the enumeration of this Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. In other words, the fact that we've named certain rights here doesn't mean we're forfeiting other rights that we have at common law. Somebody once asked me in regard to that right, doesn't doesn't this give the court some breathing room to find new rights, like the right to abortion and so on? And my answer to that is no, simply because of the word retained. This is not the right of new, new rights acquired by the people. It protects other rights retained by the people. In other words, the rights guaranteed by the Ninth Amendment are those that they already understood under then-existing English and American common law. And finally, the Tenth Amendment, which some would call the cornerstone of liberty, the idea that the power is not delegated by this Constitution to the United States, that is, to the federal government, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. Again, the principle that government has only the powers that we, the people, have delegated to it, and no others. All others are reserved to the states or to the people. And in the U.S. versus Darby case, the Supreme Court in around 1940, giving a very liberal interpretation, said that the Tenth Amendment states but a truism that all has been retained that has not been surrendered. In other words, it doesn't really change anything. Now, in a sense, that is true. The framers, when they adopted the Tenth Amendment, didn't think they were changing anything, but they thought they were setting into concrete what they thought was already clear. And the principle, pardon the pun about in concrete, the principle is the cornerstone of what free and limited government is all about. So I, I wonder if I could get you to do something for me. And I just this is me picking your ample brain, Colonel. But um, if you were asked to either rewrite or to clarify some of the Bill of Rights, are, are there any of the amendments that you would rewrite in such a way that they could not possibly be misinterpreted for anything other than limiting government power and, and preventing mischief? Or or for that matter, are there any any uh, amendments that you would add or any ways that you would state it? That, that would further strengthen that limitation of government power? Under the question of the Fourth Amendment, for example, and reasonable search and seizure, I might set out something there about what a right of privacy should or should not include. And the courts have 
said that there is a right of privacy, which they found in the term liberty, and have tried to give all sorts of fanciful interpretations to that. Under the right to keep and bear arms, I might make much more clear that, although part of the reason for this is for a well-regulated militia, it doesn't depend on that. And it is an individual right as well as a right that applies to the state. In Alabama, our Alabama Constitution simply says every person shall have the right to keep and bear arms in defense of himself and the state. And that clears up any question on the meaning of that, although I think we'll talk more about the Second Amendment in another broadcast. Okay. When we come back, we're also going to take on the First Amendment and freedom of expression. We've got to take a very quick commercial break. This is Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eitzmo, and we'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We're talking about rights, and in particular the Bill of Rights today. And Colonel, let's talk a little bit about the process by which the Bill of Rights was ratified in order to become part of the Constitution. Well, let's begin by ratification of the Constitution itself, because the nation was not united on ratifying this Constitution. There were quite a few that dissented. Now, we read in the Constitution at the close that this is done in convention by the unanimous consent of the states present. But let's understand what that means. When we say unanimous consent of the states present, what this means is that of the 12 states present, Rhode Island never sent delegates, of the 12 states present, a majority of the delegates present and voting at the time from each of the 12 states voted in favor of adopting this constitution. There were several delegates that did not, some that were not there at the convention at the time of the signing, but there were three delegates there who refused to sign the constitution. One of these was Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts, governor of Massachusetts. One of these was George Mason of Virginia, and law school today is named after him. And the third was also from Virginia. His name escapes me at the moment. Now, one of these, I believe it was Randolph of Virginia, later changed his mind and decided he would support the ratification of the Constitution. But another, Luther Martin of Maryland, who had signed the Constitution, later changed his mind and decided that he could not support it. But we had quite a debate in this nation over ratification of the Constitution. And as time comes for Virginia to ratify, and since there were going to be nine, we needed nine states to make the Constitution effective, we had the ratification of eight states as far as Virginia knew, and Virginia was the largest and possibly the most influential state of the nation. But interestingly enough, it seems like the center the intellectual center of America had moved by this time to Virginia. Back in the 1600s, the intellectual center had been Massachusetts with the Puritans. By the late 1700s, it had moved to Virginia. Now, we all know that since that time, the intellectual center of America has moved to Alabama and Utah. But <laughs> at any rate, <laughs> but at any rate, Virginia now is holding a ratification debate, and this is very important, they think, because this will be the state that puts the Constitution over the top. 
and you have some of the top minds in America. They're arguing for ratification. People like John Marshall, who becomes chief justice, people like James Madison and others. Washington was not at the ratifying convention, but he was known to support ratification. But you have Patrick Henry, the great orator, who was opposed to the Constitution. He wouldn't go to the convention. He says, I smell a rat. He thought the convention was going to take away American liberties, and he wouldn't go. And you have George Mason, who some call him the father of the Bill of Rights, but he also opposed the Constitution. But anyway, Patrick Henry particularly was so effective in debating against the Constitution that it looked, even though the proponents of the Constitution had come saying that we think we have a clear majority in Virginia, they, by the time the vote was coming, Patrick Henry had been so effective in debating against it, they were afraid they were going to lose. And one of the issues that Henry and Mason used was the lack of a Bill of Rights. And so Madison then told the delegates at the Virginia Ratifying Convention that if the Constitution is ratified, he will immediately go to work on a Bill of Rights. Now, as we saw before, earlier he had said that he didn't think one was needed, but he promised that he would support one. And with that, the Constitution was then ratified in Virginia by a very, very narrow margin. The Federalists rejoiced because now the Constitution is effective. This is the ninth state. The anti-federalists were threatening violence. Patrick Henry then spoke to an angry crowd of anti-federalists, and he said, the Constitution has been ratified. We are all federalists now. I suggest you all go home. And they did. I don't know if they went home, but at least they left. Now, what they didn't know, and by the way, Patrick Henry then became a supporter of the Constitution for the rest of his life. What they didn't know was that some of this was unnecessary because just a week earlier, New Hampshire had already been the ninth state to ratify, but the fax machines and emails and tweets weren't working, so they didn't know that at the time. But anyway, so Madison then immediately went to work on a Bill of Rights, and quite a number of states, when they ratified the Constitution, they had in their ratification resolutions suggested various amendments many of which took the form of the rights. And there were some 350 proposals for items that should be in the Bill of Rights, many of which were duplicating others from other states. Madison took these, and he reduced them to 12 amendments. That surprises some people. They think 10. Well, there were two that were not ratified at the time. And Anyway, he presented these to Congress in 1789, and the ratification, or the, or rather I should say the debates over the Bill of Rights took place there, but at this time in Congress, the debate was not really whether we should have a Bill of Rights, rather the debates were what exactly the Bill of Rights should consist of and how should they be worded. And so the Bill of Rights was adopted in Congress in 1789, It was sent to the states for ratification, and 10 of those amendments were ratified by the year 1791 and became what we know today as the Bill of Rights. What was the major concern? I mean, if we could summarize why they felt the the anti-federalists felt like they needed that, that Bill of Rights, 
did they think that there would be um, that there would be opportunism on the part of uh, of people looking for loopholes, looking for some kind of wiggle room that uh, that they could exploit under that written constitution? They certainly did. And in fact, in some ways, you might say that the anti-federalists were a little more perceptive and far-sighted than the federalists in that they saw where some of these limits on power could be circumvented. And they were very concerned that Patrick Henry, when he says, where are your checks in this government? He felt there were not sufficient checks and balances. And he says, the limits on federal power here in this constitution is based solely upon the supposition that our rulers will be good men and will not abuse their power. But he says, history shows otherwise. And he says, where in all the world has there ever been a society that has based its liberties upon the supposition that its rulers will be good men that have not lost their liberty? Wow. He was very persuasive, and he was probably right in a lot of things. And perhaps the anti-federalists had some good points about things that could be abused. They saw the dangers of judicial tyranny. They saw the dangers of twisting certain powers and stretching them into powers that the framers hadn't intended. But, yes, they certainly thought that that one of those dangers could be that rights were not specifically spelled out, and therefore they might be ignored and might be violated. And they felt that a specific Bill of Rights that set out certain rights that these were for sure, these were set forth, these were clear, and therefore we know that they're not going to be violated. They felt this was necessary for the preservation of liberty. Colonel, you mentioned that uh, originally there were 12 amendments that were proposed for the original Bill of Rights. What, I'm just curious, what were the two that, that didn't make the cut? Well, that's very interesting. One of them had to do with legislative reapportionment, and that one was never ratified. The other one had to do with the pay for Congress, and it simply said that if Congress votes itself a pay raise, that pay raise will not go into effect until after the next election. In other words, until we've had a chance to vote these rascals out of office. Now, this never gained the necessary number of ratifications, but in the 1990s, people were concerned at this time about federal spending and how Congress was voting itself increases despite the fact that we were in deficits and so on. And there was a young man at the University of Texas in an economics class who wrote a term paper about how to eliminate some of this excess spending. And he pointed to that amendment that had been originally part of the Bill of Rights but not ratified. And he said, now commonly today, when we say an amendment is sent to the states to be ratified, we give a certain amount of time, usually seven years. But they didn't put any time limit on the ratification of this amendment. Well, the young man was not condensed. After graduation, he went to work as a legislative aide. Texas then ratified that amendment. And one state after another started ratifying. And by the mid-1990s, the necessary three-fourths of states had ratified. And that became the 27th Amendment to the United States Constitution. Okay, we've got to take a break. We'll be back right after this.
Once again, welcome back to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network with Colonel John Eidsmo. Uh, Colonel, we've been walking through the Bill of Rights, and I know that you wanted to make sure we had some time to talk about freedom of expression. So with that, I'm just going to let you run with it. Let's look to the First Amendment itself, and it's significant that this is the First Amendment to be ratified because it places the right of liberty as being the most fundamental of all of our rights and recognizing that religious liberty particularly is a gift of God. But as we read that First Amendment, it simply says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. I'd like to save the religious liberty issues here for a later time because we really need at least one full broadcast to talk about those and probably more than one. But the basic question that I'd like us to think about here a moment is, why did the Founding Fathers opt for freedom of expression? You know, everything we see here in the First Amendment relates to free expression in one way or another. But why were the Founding Fathers concerned about freedom of expression? And sometimes what I've done with my law students, when I ask that question, why do we have free speech? Well, sometimes I'll get a rather simplistic answer because the First Amendment says so. And that's true, but I'd like you to go beyond that a little bit and ask, why did we write the First Amendment to say so? And so I suggest to them, since you haven't given me any good reasons for freedom of speech, I'd like to suggest that you write to your congressman about an amendment that I'm proposing. And you can do that until my amendment is adopted. You'll still have freedom of speech. But my amendment will simply abolish freedom of speech. And instead, it will establish a department of truth under the federal government. It will be in the executive branch. It will be headed by the secretary of truth, who will be appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. And this will be the person who has more academic degrees than anybody else in the country and therefore is the smartest and wisest and closest to the truth of anybody in the country. And if we don't find anybody better, I might humbly volunteer for the position. <laughs> but at any rate, this person will have undersecretaries under him, like the secretary of political truth, the secretary of economic truth, the secretary of scientific truth, and so on. And they will issue truth statements. And these truth statements will be setting forth the fundamental doctrine of what we as a nation believe about certain things. And everything that is said can be said that in support of these things will be allowed, but nobody will be allowed to say anything contrary to a position paper of the Department of Truth. After all, the Department of Truth is most likely to have arrived at the truth. And people who are going to be speaking contrary to truth are just going to create falsehood, division, and confusion. And they're just going to cause harm. And then I'll ask my students, now you can write to Congress to support this. After all, until, my, until this amendment is adopted, you still have that right to write to Congress. When you do so, or, or why, how many of you are going to write a letter to Congress today supporting my amendments? Well, nobody raises their hand. And they'll say, why not? Why don't you like my idea of the ministry of truth? And I'll usually get a few answers, and as the discussion goes, they'll start giving you some reasons 
why we believe in freedom of expression. Now, several of the primary reasons are, number one, that it is a God-given right. Well, does God give us the right to hold erroneous opinions? Well, perhaps he does. After all, he let the rich young ruler walk away rather than accept him, and he holds people responsible for the consequences of their opinions. But yes, he does allow people to hold wrong views. Do you have a right to hold a view that is wrong? Maybe, maybe not. But certainly God has not delegated to government the authority to determine for us what is right or wrong. And so in that sense, we should have a right of freedom of expression just because government shouldn't have the power to tell us what we can and cannot believe. It ties in in part with the Puritan idea, the idea that every person is directly responsible to God for the condition of his own soul, the priesthood of all believers concept. And with that, there is freedom of expression. Part of this comes in arguments during the Middle Ages between which is supreme, the church or the state, the emperor or, or the pope. And many churchmen were making arguments of freedom of expression to preserve the independence of the church from the state. Part of it, though, is simply a recognition of human fallibility. And with a recognition of human fallibility, recognition that none of us has an absolute understanding of truth. We believe truth is given to us through the scriptures, but even there, we recognize that our interpretation is not necessarily infallible. And so that basic recognition of our own limitations and our own fallibility would say to us that no person should be in a position to proclaim for everybody else what they have to believe is the truth. Tied in with that, there is the idea that truth will win out in the marketplace of ideas. The idea that the majority is not always right necessarily, but is more likely in any one given situation to arrive at the truth than any one single person. Who is more likely to arrive at the truth? A judge or a jury of 12? Well, we've guaranteed to defendants the right of trial by jury because we believe in that wisdom that can be contained in the minds of 12 people that pool their wisdom and experience together to come up with a just verdict and sometimes sentence. But the idea that the person who holds all these academic degrees is not necessarily more qualified to determine what the truth is than the people as a whole. As the people as a whole argue about what the truth is and in the nature of the argument, it goes from good logical arguments and arguments based on evidence to name-calling and sarcasm and humor and the like, that throughout that rough-and-tumble process of the marketplace of ideas, that what is the best idea is more likely to emerge out of that process than it is just by giving somebody in a position of authority the position to say what is truth and make everybody believe the same thing. Another reason is the idea of human progress. And even though we recognize that we are sinners, still people are capable of learning from the past. And one of the ways we can learn from the past is by reading about the past and reading what wise persons have written about the past. And as things have happened, we should be able to read about them and apply the lessons of the past to the present. 
Likewise, scientific progress. If I perform experiments, and in the course of my experiments, I discover that round wheels work better on carts than square wheels do, well, the next generation shouldn't have to repeat my experiments to come to that conclusion. Rather, they should be able to read what I've written about my experiments and start there and then build on that. So these are some of the reasons, then, why we believe in freedom of expression. It helps in progress. It helps us arrive at the truth. But also, it's a matter of personal growth. We express ourselves by writing and speaking. And we grow by writing and speaking. But also, freedom of speech is a limit on government power. The very fact that people out there can criticize what the government says or what the government does means that government's power is not limited. The fact that we have a press out there, that we have some judge in a courtroom who's inclined to run his courtroom like a tyrant, well, the fact that there are reporters there who are eager to report something like this in some tabloid that may or may be very irresponsible, but it is more likely to keep judges in line than if the media just simply reported what was the party line. So these are some of the reasons, then, why we believe in freedom of expression. It is a means of limiting government. It is exercising a God-given right. It develops ourselves as persons. It's more likely to arrive at the truth, and it aids in human progress. Colonel, that is one of the best explanations of free expression and one of the best defenses of free expression I think I've ever heard in my life. One quick question in the 30 seconds we have left. What kind of reading material would you suggest for people who want to get a better grasp of this subject? I'd like to suggest quickly my own work here, Historical and Theological Foundations of Law. Also, Cleon Skousen, who I believe you may have known Cleon Skousen. He was a good friend of mine in his days. His work, The Making of America, The Meaning and Substance of the Constitution, goes through the Constitution phrase by phrase and the Bill of Rights phrase by phrase. And he gives a very good scholarly and readable explanation of what the Bill of Rights is all about. This is Liberty Classroom. Thank you so much for listening.